Uh, we're going to come this morning again to look at the book of Hebrews. Um, unfortunately, I'm not very good at technology and computers, so there won't be anything on the screen. It's just looking at my face and um, hopefully trying to understand the Yorkshire accent. So um, I'm just going to read as the passage of Scripture we're going to look at. It's taken from Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, reading from verse 4. Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Uh, Just join me in prayer for a moment, if you would. Father, we pray that as we gather this morning, we pray that your word would speak to us, and we pray we'd hear the message which... um, Abel's offering speaks to us this morning. We know that he speaks and we desire to hear your voice. Um, Be amongst us and help us. Send forth your spirit to open our eyes and help us. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we come to look at that passage in um, a bit more detail, it'd be helpful to set it in context so we know where we're going. Uh, We're going again through the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And now the book of Hebrews was a letter or a, a sermon, a word of exhortation which was sent to Jewish Christians by an unknown author sometime in the first century. And although we can't be sure exactly when it's written, we can be sure that it's written at a very special time in history. It's written after the day of Pentecost, so God is at work through the gospel, saving people, bringing them into his kingdom. But it's written before AD 70, so the temple is still standing. So if you like, the book of Hebrews is written in the shadow of the temple. God has split the curtain in half, the temple games up, we don't need a priest, we don't need a sacrifice anymore, Jesus has done everything, but the Jews haven't got the memo yet, they haven't clicked on to what God is doing. And so the Jewish community fiercely persecuted those who converted to Christianity. And the Christians are finding it hard, they're struggling. And the writer describes them as having weak knees. He says they've grown sluggish, tired of hearing. They haven't resisted to the point where they're shedding their blood yet, but some of them have had their possessions taken away, and many of them have faced fierce persecution from their Jewish contemporaries. And there's a a horrible religious pressure going on as well. They're trying to get them to turn back to the old covenant, um, to the law of Moses as the way to be right with God. And so the people at that time, they're in danger of rejecting the free gift of salvation And to go back to a system which couldn't ever make the worshipper perfect in the eyes of God. So it's into this environment of hostility that the letter to the Hebrews is written. But the message of Hebrews is is absolutely crystal clear, isn't it? Jesus Christ is all they need both for life in this world and for their life in the next world. For eternal life. And he just goes through just telling us how great Jesus is. In Hebrews 1, Jesus is better than the angels. He's God himself, whose throne will last forever. In Hebrews chapter 2, he's the better way of salvation. Hebrews 3 is better than Moses. Hebrews 4 is better than um, is the better Sabbath rest, which is there for the people of God. Um, Hebrews 6 is the better hope. Hebrews 7 and 8 is the better priest who who brings a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 is the sin offering... He's the substance and not the shadow. He's everything which we need. He's opened the way for us to be saved and it's all by His grace. 
And, and that's just scratching the surface whenever you think about Jesus Christ. You can't get to the bottom of him. You can't learn everything there is to know about him. He's, he's just so great and so awesome. And you might think this morning, well, it's great, isn't it, that he was the answer to their problems, that he really was all these Jewish converts would need. But um, I can't really relate to their struggle this morning. Um, I've, had, I, I've, I've struggled with lots of sins, Luke, but I don't think ever offering a bull as a sacrifice for myself is one of them. Um, I've never been tempted to perform an animal sacrifice or to circumcise myself unnecessarily. It just doesn't, it doesn't enter into the, uh, the category of temptations. Uh, I'm, I, I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. You haven't struggled with those things. Um, but how often are we tempted to think that faith alone in Jesus Christ isn't enough? How many people think that there's a catch to this salvation? It can't really be all of grace. Maybe there's still something I need to do in order to be sure that God will accept me rather than take the free gift of the water of life freely. It just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? In Romans chapter 5, it talks about the free gift. And we're always suspicious of free gifts, aren't we? Things which are free, we think, is it really free? Nah, probably not. There's probably a catch somewhere in the, in the small print. But as we look at the gospel, the gospel is the only show in town. There's other people in church today, this morning, they're meeting to worship together, but the gospel is the only thing worth talking about. It's the only show in town, the only way a sinner can be made right with God. And it, it gives me sadness in my heart when I think how many people in our world won't go to heaven just because they refuse to trust the Savior God has provided. To simply, forsaking everything else, trust in Him. Or when I think of myself and my brothers and sisters, I think how many hours of peace and joy have been stolen from us in our Christian walk when we thought that God's love depended on our performance. How many hours have you spent wondering if God loves you or if it, you know, these kind of thoughts which go through our mind? It can just seem too good to be true sometimes. But the book of Hebrews is clear. It's by faith and faith alone. And faith is so important. Just before we get to this section in Hebrews 11, he gives them a solemn warning about rejecting faith alone. He, he, he says these words in Hebrews chapter 10, whoever the writer is. He says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. How the just or the righteous ones shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So trusting in Christ and, and being found in him is a matter of life or death. It's a matter of eternity. It's something we need to make sure we're right about. Hebrews comes and it draws a line in the sand. And there's people who trust in themselves or in some religious system or in their priest or in their worship who will be eternally lost. And there's people who trust in Christ who will be eternally served. It's as simple as that. We must belong to one of those groups. There's no middle ground in the book of Hebrews. And so as we come to Hebrews 11, it's just going to hammer that story home. So we're going to need to fasten our seatbelts. We're going further back now all the way into Genesis. And the story of Cain and Abel, if you want to read it in your own time, is in, um, in Genesis chapter 4. But I've, I've got to take us back a step further into Genesis chapter 3. So we're back in the garden. Um, Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They've brought disobedience into the world. They've brought sin into the creation. And for the first time, whoa, they realize they're naked. 
And so they want to fix the problem. So Adam tells Eve, get the sewing kit out and get the fig leaves together. We'll make some kind of shoddy clothing. And then maybe God won't find out what's happened. So um, Eve gets the sewing kit and goes to work. And meanwhile, the triune God's walking in the cool of the day in the garden. He knows all things. He knows full well what's happened. Um, he knows that sin and death have entered the world. And he asks them two questions. He says, where are you? And what is this that you have done? So he comes seeking them to restore the relationship. Um, he promises that pain and, and misery is going to be part of their daily experience. Um, but he doesn't leave them without a hope of redemption. In Genesis 3.15, it's the first mention, if you like, of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. He's going to be the Messiah who comes into this world and he's going to crush the serpent's head and restore Eden to humanity. But it's not going to be without cost to himself. He says that he's going to come and crush the serpent. And as he crushes the serpent, he's going to be bruised. He's going to be broken himself as he brings humanity back to God. So there is hope as they leave the garden with their um, newfound clothes. God kills some animals and clothes their nakedness and sends them on their way, but not without hope. And I believe that Eve understood this. It's often the wife who gets it, isn't it, you guys who are married? It's often the wife who understands. Um, because we're told in Genesis 4.1 that um, Eve, Eve gave birth to Cain, and she said literally in the Hebrew, by the Lord's help, I have gotten the man. I've got him. I've acquired the man. Now, who's, you know, she's thinking that, okay, this person born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head, I'm a woman. Hopefully he's here now. Hopefully Cain's going to save the day. And so the big question as we arrive at Genesis 4 is, is Cain going to be the promised deliverer or not? Well, sometimes passes, um, his brother Abel is born. He's not as important to them. His name is um, a breath or nothing. Um, he, he's surely not going to be, it's not going to be through his line that the, um, yeah, the promised Messiah comes. So time passes and they come before God. They decide to have a bit of a worship service. Um, and Cain, being a good vegetable grower like Malcolm, he comes and he brings some of his hard work and produce to the Lord. And I imagine it was a good vegetable. You know, like when you go to the farmer's market and it's like um, hyper-organic apple. I didn't even think about chemicals when I was, I was making it. You know, some real pure sort of fruit. He brought it to the Lord. He offered the best that he could do. And Abel offers a simple lamb. He didn't get busy in the garden to make that. It was the sheep who got busy. That's how the lamb was made. That's how the lamb came about. Abel just offers what they've done. So Cain seems like a better offering, doesn't it? And our passage in Hebrews, it tells us that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. But why wasn't Cain's acceptable? Surely it would have took a lot more work, wouldn't it? I've often had a romantic idea of a vegetable garden, but in, you know, to tell you the truth, I just can't be bothered. I can't be bothered with the digging and the planting and everything else. So, so why was Cain's offering rejected? Is it because God doesn't like vegetables? I don't think so. And the answer is that what is given to God was not given by faith. You see, Cain, as he comes to, he comes to worship God, he's not looking for God to be kind to him. He's looking for a reward for his hard work. He wants a pat on the back. Well done, Cain. These are some really tasty looking vegetables. You're such a great guy. But God pays no attention to that. That's not how a relationship with God works. If you want to be friends with God, it has to be on the basis of his grace. He's not in the habit of giving people a pat on the back for all they've done and trying to strike up a friendship 
on that basis. It tells us in the Scriptures that God gives grace to the proud. Uh, sorry, He opposes the proud, but gives grace to those who are humble. And so Cain is a proud man. He wants the pat on the back. He wants the props from God. He wants to tell him how great his offering is. And Cain is a perfect example, and maybe you know a religious person, but Cain is the perfect example of a religious man. He sets out to try and control God. It doesn't work out, and then he gets upset and throws the teddy out of the cot and kills his brother. Well, maybe they don't all do that. But they certainly throw the teddy out of the cot when they realize that God is no respecter of persons and that our good works are not going to serve us. It's an offensive message for a religious person. And so, Cain, he's not, he's not the seed of the woman. He's not going to be the promised deliverer. In fact, we're told to avoid him because Cain is of the devil. That's what it says in 1 John 3.12. It says we should, should not be as Cain, who was of the wicked one. He was of the wicked one. His, his thought patterns, his behavior were more like the devil's than God's. You see, Cain hated grace. He hated the idea that his dirty little brother has found favor with God through this blood sacrifice when he and all his hard work has just gone unnoticed. It just doesn't seem fair to him. And he hates the idea of a free meal, you know, a free pass. He doesn't like it. If he's going to be friends with God, he's going to earn it. So he's jealous of, he's jealous of his brother. But the sad thing is in this story that the grace for Cain was there all along, wasn't it? You know, God says to him, he says, if you do well, will you also not be accepted? You know, he's ready to strike up a friendship with Cain in that moment. But Cain doesn't want to know. It reminds me a little bit of the Pharisees in John chapter 6. They come to Jesus and they ask him about real worship. And they say, what must we be doing to do the works that God requires of us? And Jesus gives them a bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer, doesn't he? He says, this is the work of God, if you want to call it a work, that you believe on the one that he has sent. That's the work. If you want to get busy in, in, in being friends with God, then you better start believing the gospel. It's a message religious people don't like. It also reminds me of the elder brother and um, the story of the prodigal son. You know, the music and the dancing's going off and he doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, all these years I've slayed for you and you never even gave me a goat. You never rewarded me for my good behavior. And now you expect me just to join in this, this celebration of grace for this son of yours who's gone off with the prostitutes and spent all the money. I don't think so. I'm not stepping foot into that party. And he doesn't go in. He doesn't go into the celebration of grace. It's the same with the Pharisee, isn't it, who goes to the temple. And he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Or even like this filthy old tax collector here, I tithe, I, I do all the good works. and nah, he, he went home and he wasn't even justified. God didn't even know his name. He's trying to earn a place in heaven. That's what Cain's offering symbolizes. Trying to earn God's favor through our works. And even throughout the Old Testament, it was, it was always understood that salvation is by grace. And the prophet Isaiah, it's a bit of a crude verse, isn't it? But he says, all our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Like used menstrual towels or tampons we call them in England. I don't know what they call them here. Another crude figure of speech from the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3. He says that his former righteousness, everything which he counted gain, is just a pile of dung. See Philippians 3 for that one. 
You see, our good works can't commend us to God at all. You see, the last thing the devil wants in all the world is for anyone to understand that. He's happy for you to believe a half gospel, which is part works and part grace, because that gospel can't save anyone. It's only when we understand that all our good works are not going to save us, they're not going to commend us to God. It's only when that happens that we can look outside of ourselves for grace and mercy. And when you look outside of yourself, you'll find Christ there. And he's ready to forgive, he's ready to save. It's all on the table, it's all done like in Sean's um, story where the wood's already sacked. You just need to come and receive it, That's that's the only thing you need to do. But so many people refused to receive it. Uh, when I was a little bit younger in England, I would often read the book, um, The Pilgrim's Progress. Are people in New Zealand familiar with that book? Maybe a few of the older people, maybe? Yeah. Uh, a book by John Bunyan. It's about, it's like an allegory, I think. And um, a Christian and hopeful, they leave the city of destruction, which is this world, and they venture off towards the celestial city. And they cross the river of death and they're about to approach the pearly gates and meet Jesus Christ And um, at the end of the book. And then they're sailing towards and they see this other fellow there. And now this man's name is Ignorance. See, as you might have guessed, he's ignorant. He's ignorant of what it means to be forgiven and and to, to have salvation. And he approaches the city gate and he thinks, it's going to be just fine with me. I don't need this robe of righteousness which these other guys are talking about. I'll I'll be just fine as I am. And it doesn't work out well for him in that story, if you've read the book. He's bound hand and foot and cast down to hell. And, And John Bunyan writes these words, and it's a real sobering part at the end of the book. He says, Then I saw there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. A chilling end almost to the book, you know, until he wakes up in the prison. But it's not nearly so chilling as the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as sad and sobering as the account we find of people trusting in their own good works in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many wonderful works? And I will tell them plainly, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, they turn up on the day of judgment and they say, Lord, hold on a minute. Stop the proceedings. I've done, I've done, I've done all these good works. Don't they count for anything? Don't they get me through the door? And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. A terrible thing to hear. But that's the future. That's a prophecy, isn't it, from Jesus Christ. That's the future for those who trust in their own good works. He said, works, works, works. Look at me. Look how great I am. And he'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. He says, they haven't done the will of the Father. They'll say, ah, so it is about works. I knew you were just blowing hot air about this great stuff. Yeah, Jesus wants to see us doing the will of the Father. And it's, it's the good working Christians will get in. Uh, in. In Scripture, Jesus tells us exactly what the will of the Father is. He gives us a big clue and he says, for this is the will of my Father. Um, John 6, 40 I'll read the verse here. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And that's good news, isn't it? That's good news for sinners who've done, who've done naughty things, who, who don't do all the good works they should do. 
Have you understood that, my friend? Like, whoever you are, have you understood that in yourself? Have you said, you know what, I can't save myself. I better trust in the Savior that God's provided. Have you come to that place? Because I want to say this, it's impossible to trust in Christ and in yourself at the same time. It's one or the other, you've got to choose. It's, like, it's a bit like going to the casino. And um, I know some of you probably hate gambling, so apologize for that. But yeah, you throw the chip on, and it's got to be red or black or zero. You can't say, well, I want it in between the red or black. I want to gamble it on, the, on that way. You can't do that. It's got to be the red or the black. And it's the same with Jesus. You have to gamble everything on him. You place the chip on Jesus, and it will come in. I assure you, it's not a gamble. It's fixed. It's all fixed. The one who trusts in him shall by no means ever be put to shame. It's a free gift and you can just receive it. Well, this morning, maybe you've not heard anything like that before. Maybe you've been brought up religious and you think, I actually thought it was about me trying to be good, but I still don't really understand what it means to trust in Christ. Well, we're going to go on. We're going to have a look at Abel's offering and see what that can teach us about faith. So, I suppose if we... If I had a strict structure, my first point would have been that our good works can't save us. Our good works can't save us. But in this part of the sermon, I want to talk about, about those who trust in Christ are fully accepted by God. Those who trust in the substitute are fully accepted by God. If that sounds a bit complicated, let's get back to the story. Abel brings his offering. Now it's something very simple, isn't it? A lamb. A simple lamb. Now, lambs throughout Scripture, they came to be a picture of innocence and purity. Um, I've killed quite a few animals back in the UK, but I think if I was going to eat a lamb, I'd happily eat it, obviously. But maybe I'd pause for a second just before I pulled the trigger, because they're pretty cute animals, aren't they? A lamb. Even the hardest man might just have a moment's pause and think, right, I'm taking this lamb, it's going to be the lamb chops. You know, a lamb, it's a picture of pure innocence, isn't it there? You know, playing in the grass. Purity, innocence, that's the picture of the lamb in the Bible. And it's probably for that reason that they were used in the temple sacrifice. So let's imagine that the temple's open today, I'm the priest, you bring the lamb, and um, I say, right, stick your hands on the lamb, on its head, and we'll transfer the guilt from you to the lamb. So the, so the lamb takes the guilt, and then to your horror, I grab it and slit its throat. There'd be blood everywhere. It'd be horrible. But that's a picture of substitution. A basic principle, life for life. It's the lamb or it's you. And this is the picture which the Lord Jesus Christ used for himself, isn't it? Uh, when John the Baptist was in, in the wilderness and he was introducing Jesus to Israel, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is our sacrificial lamb. He's the one who cleanses us from all sin. And if we trust in him, we'll be fully served. So Abel's offering in some way, it, it was like a, a foreshadowing of Christ and what he would do. You know, it's hard to know exactly what Abel understood. He looked forward in a, a misty kind of haze and thought, well, you know, my parents, they're killed. You know, some animals got killed for them once and there's going to be this head-crushing Messiah who's going to appear, but I'm, I'm making a sacrifice. It's not good for me. I need forgiveness. So I believe Abel's offering was accepted because of what it symbolized. It symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. And when the lamb died, it wasn't coming back, was it? 
It wasn't coming back. Your sins had been fully paid for. In fact, one lamb would often be sent, is it the Azazel? It would be sent off into the wilderness. And now if you send a lamb off into Israel's wilderness, it's going to be devoured by a wild beast before the night's over. Put it this way, you're not seeing that sheep cruising around anymore. It's gone. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. It'll be eaten in no time. And so the lamb was a picture of propitiation, expiation, all these things, all these great biblical themes that our sin is taken away and that it turns God's anger away from us. Um, but that's not what the text says, is it? That's not why the text says that the Abel, Abel's offering was great. It says that, um, it says, by faith, Abel offered to, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So it's also, it's also the fact that this was a simple faith offering. Perhaps that's the most important reason why the offering was accepted. It was simple faith without any human Obedience. He wasn't bringing anything to the table, was he, when he brought the lamb there which had been slain? He wasn't saying anything about himself. He wasn't saying, look at me, God. Look how great I am. Look at what I've made. Oh, you made a mess. There's a lamb with its throat cut in front of me. It's a mess. It's, it's, nothing, it's nothing to boast about. Abel didn't have anything. You know, he couldn't say that he'd made this lamb himself. He'd, he'd worked really hard on it. He just simply trusted that in some way this would be enough. He wasn't looking for a pat on the back or a reward for good behavior. He was looking for grace and mercy. And friends, if you want grace and mercy this morning, if you want to be forgiven of all your sins, it's all on the table for you. It's all ready to take. It's good news for you that religion can't save you because it'd just be too hard. It'd be too much effort. And we can say this morning as we're gathered, I can say on the authority of the Bible that God... Whoever you are wants to save you this morning. Um, it tells us in the scripture that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, that includes you, doesn't it? He wants you in. He wants you to come and join the party. The invitations are all open. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, oh, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Well, it sounds pretty free to me, doesn't it? But without money, without cost, free, it's, it's all there for you to take. Because Jesus has paid for everything. He's spread the gospel feast. He's died in our place. He's lived the perfect life. And if you trust him, you can be absolutely sure that you'll be saved. Absolutely sure. And that's what these Christians here needed to understand. They didn't need a priest or a temple. And we don't need those things today. We don't need any of them. There's one mediator between God and, and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. He's the one way to the Father. We don't go through a priest or an intermediate anymore. It's all in him. He finished everything. And the scripture just goes on again and again with these grace references. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so no man can boast. Or Romans 4, even more explicit. It said, now to him who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Titus 3. It's not by works of righteousness which, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy he has saved us. It's all a free gift. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say it's partially finished. I've just got to do a few more things and then you'll be all good. 
No, I said, it is finished. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, look at this in, in Hebrews 11. It tells us about what Abel, how his experience was affected after he offered the lamb. It says that he obtained the witness that he was righteous. He obtained the witness that he was righteous. So when God saw the blood, he said, Abel, you're in, you're righteous, you're going to appear in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. People will talk about you for all time, and it's just all a free gift. Isn't that great? And he got the witness that he was righteous. God told him, you're a righteous man, you're a saved man, you're going to heaven when you die. And I would suggest to you, friends, that no religious person has that. No religious person who trusts in his own good works has any assurance that he'll be saved whatsoever. He has a salvation which is, I hope I'll get in. I hope I've done enough. But religion can't ever give you the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. And my Christian friends, when we turn our eyes in on ourselves, and we take our eyes off Jesus, we lose that assurance that we're his. We lose that assurance of his love. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a bit more evil than the rest of you. I don't know. But he, he obtained the witness that he was righteous. And that comes just through simple faith. He didn't have a good look round inside and think, yep, feels like I love God for who he is without any regard to myself. I've done the good works. I've, I've paid this. Uh, yep, yep, all good. No, he looked outside of himself and he got the testimony that he was righteous. And so if you lack that assurance, if you don't have that sense that God is for you and he's, he's, he's your friend and he's preparing a place for you in eternity, take John the Baptist's advice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you trust him, it's all there for you. It's all on the table. It's, it's all there for the taking. So friends, Abel is still speaking to us this morning. If he was here, he'd tell you all about how great it is to trust in the Lamb. He'd say, Luke's not made this up. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm just waiting for it all to come together and it's going to be fantastic. But, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you don't turn in faith to this Savior, to this Redeemer, then there doesn't remain anything for you but the wrath of God. And that's not what God wants for you. He desires you to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So I'm just going to pray and then I'll, I'll hand back over to Sean. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, the freeness of your, of your grace. We praise you that you, it's all there for us. It's all on the table. It's all ready to take. Lord, I thank you that you said in your word that you give to your sheep eternal life. And they shall never perish, nor shall anyone be able to snatch them out of your hand. And Lord, we often think that the verse says something like, I give to my sheep temporary life, and they might perish if they don't behave, because my hands are slippery. But I thank you, Lord, that your hands are strong, strong for our salvation, that when we trust in you, Lord, we are saved for life. We're sealed, Lord, with an eternal redemption that lasts forever, Lord, which doesn't perish, it doesn't, it doesn't end. We praise you for the free gift of eternal life. And we just pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning who haven't received that, um, that they'd come out of their hide and they'd come out from the darkness of religion and they'd trust in it for themselves. And for those who are your children, Lord, that they'd come and, and rest in you today.
and, and, and find that peace and joy which comes from believing all over again. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.